Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. 1984 by George Orwell Part 2, Chapter 5 Sometimes, too, they talked of engaging in active rebellion against the party, but with no notion of how to take the first step. Even if the famous brotherhood was a reality, there still remained the difficulty of finding one's way into it. He told her of the strange intimacy that existed, or seemed to exist, between himself and O'Brien, and of the impulse he sometimes felt, simply to walk into O'Brien's presence, announce that he was the enemy of the party, and demand his help. Curiously enough, this did not strike her as an impossibly rash thing to do. She was used to judging people by their faces, and it seemed natural to her that Winston should believe O'Brien to be trustworthy on the strength of a single flash of the eyes. Moreover, she took it for granted that everyone, or nearly everyone, secretly hated the party and would break the rules if he thought it safe to do so. But she refused to believe that widespread organized opposition existed, or could exist. The tales about Goldstein and his underground army, she said, were simply a lot of rubbish, which the party had invented for its own purposes, and which you had to pretend to believe in. Times beyond number, at party rallies and spontaneous demonstrations, she had shouted at the top of her voice for the execution of people whose names she had never heard, and in whose supposed crimes she had not the faintest belief. When public trials were happening, she had taken her place in the detachments from the Youth League who surrounded the courts from morning to night, chanting at intervals, Death to the traitors! During the two minutes' hate, she always excelled all others in shouting insults at Goldstein. Yet she had only the dimmest idea of who Goldstein was, and what doctrines he was supposed to represent. She had grown up since the Revolution and was too young to remember the ideological battles of the 50s and 60s. Such a thing as an independent political movement was outside her imagination, and in any case, the party was invincible. It would always exist, and it would always be the same. You could only rebel against it by secret disobedience, or, at most, by isolated acts of violence, such as killing somebody or blowing something up. In some ways, she was far more acute than Winston, and far less susceptible to party propaganda. Once, when he happened in some connection to mention the war against Eurasia, she startled him by saying casually that, in her opinion, the war was not happening. The rocket bombs which fell daily on London were probably fired by the government of Oceania itself, just to keep people frightened. This was an idea that had literally never occurred to him. She also stirred a sort of envy in him by telling him that during the two minutes' hate, her great difficulty was to avoid bursting out laughing. But she only questioned the teaching of the party when they in some way touched upon her own life. Often she was ready to accept the official mythology, simply because the difference between truth and falsehood did not seem important to her. She believed, for instance, having learnt it at school, that the party had invented aeroplanes. In his own school days, Winston remembered, in the late 50s, it was only the helicopter that the party claimed to have invented. A dozen years later, when Julia was at school, it was already claiming the aeroplane. One generation more, and it would be claiming the steam engine. And when he told her that aeroplanes had been in existence before he was born and long before the revolution, the fact struck her as totally uninteresting. After all, what did it matter who had invented aeroplanes? It was rather more of a shock to him when he discovered from some chance remark that she did not remember that Oceania, four years ago, had been at war with East Asia and at peace with Eurasia. It was true that she regarded the whole war as a sham, but apparently she had not even noticed that the name of the enemy had changed. I thought we'd always been at war with Eurasia, she said vaguely. 
It frightened him a little. The invention of aeroplanes dated from long before her birth, but the switchover in the war had happened only four years ago, well after she was grown up. He argued with her about it for perhaps a quarter of an hour. In the end, he succeeded in forcing her memory back until she did dimly recall that at one time East Asia and not Eurasia had been the enemy. But the issue still struck her as unimportant. Who cares, she said impatiently. It's always one bloody war after another, and one knows the news is all lies anyway. Sometimes he talked to her of the records department and the impudent forgeries that he committed there. Such things did not appear to horrify her. She did not feel the abyss opening beneath her feet at the thought of lies becoming truths. He told her the story of Jones, Aronson, and Rutherford, and the momentous slip of paper which he had once held between his fingers. It did not make much impression on her. At first, indeed, she failed to grasp the point of the story. Were they friends of yours? she said. No, I never knew them. They were inner party members. Besides, they were far older men than I was. They belonged to the old days, before the revolution. I barely knew them by sight. Then what was there to worry about? People are being killed off all the time, aren't they? He tried to make her understand. This was an exceptional case. It wasn't just a question of somebody being killed. Do you realize that the past, starting from yesterday, has been actually abolished? If it survives anywhere, it's in a few solid objects with no words attached to them, like that lump of glass there. Already we know almost literally nothing about the Revolution and the years before the Revolution. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book has been rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street and building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And that process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. I know, of course, that the past is falsified, but it would never be possible for me to prove it, even when I did the falsification myself. After the thing is done, no evidence ever remains. The only evidence is inside my own mind, and I don't know with any certainty that any other human being shares my memories. Just in that one instance, in my whole life, I did possess actual concrete evidence after the event, years after it. And what good was that? It was no good, because I threw it away a few minutes later. But if the same thing happened today, I should keep it. Well, I wouldn't, said Julia. I'm quite ready to take risks, but only for something worthwhile, not for bits of old newspaper. What could you have done with it even if you had kept it? Not much, perhaps, but it was evidence. It might have planted a few doubts here and there, supposing I dared to show it to anybody. I don't imagine that we can alter anything on our own lifetime, but one can imagine little knots of resistance springing up here and there, small groups of people banding themselves together and gradually growing and even leaving a few records behind so that the next generations can carry on where we leave off. I'm not interested in the next generation, dear. I'm interested in us. You're only a rebel from the waist downwards, he told her. She thought this brilliantly witty and flung her arms round him in delight. In the ramifications of party doctrine, she had not the faintest interest. Whenever he began to talk of the principles of Ingsoc, doublethink, the mutability of the past, and the denial of objective reality, and to use new-speak words, she became bored and confused and said that she never paid any attention to that kind of thing. One knew that it was all rubbish, so why let oneself be worried by it? She knew when to cheer and when to boo, and that was all one needed. If he persisted in talking of such subjects, she had a disconcerting habit of falling asleep. 
She was one of those people who can go to sleep at any hour and in any position. Talking to her, he realized how easy it was to present an appearance of orthodoxy, while having no grasp whatever of what orthodoxy meant. In a way, the worldview of the party imposed itself most successfully on, on people incapable of understanding it. They could be made to fully accept the most flagrant violations of reality, because they never fully grasped the enormity of what was demanded of them, and they were not sufficiently interested in public events to notice what was happening. By lack of understanding, they remained sane. They simply swallowed everything, and what they swallowed did them no harm, because it left no residue behind, just as a grain of corn will pass undigested through the body of a bird. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>